John, uh, good show this week because we get one of our favorite guys to talk to, whether at the ballpark or on our podcast, and that's David Cohn. Absolutely. There's a reason he's been on multiple times. He's a fantastic talker and was incredible pitcher for the Mets and the Yankees. I'm anxious to ask him about all sorts of things. Mets, Yankees, MLB, analytics. It's going to be outstanding. Hey, we might even he was an outstanding pitcher. We might even ask him about the Hall of Fame. John and I will talk a lot about the Los Angeles Dodgers, the team that everyone is gunning for this season. We'll play hit and error at the end. If you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. You know, John, what what has hit me recently is it's been a great time for kind of Kansas City Royals owners, right? They they signed their star player, Bobby Witt, for a long-term contract. What was it, $288.7 million, maybe even more than that if all his options kick in. And the guy who owns 1% of the team just won his third Super Bowl. That's Patrick Mahomes, uh, 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 whose dad uh, obviously has been on the show, was a relief pitcher for a long time. Uh, you and I were texting each other uh, during the game because we had to do this stupid podcast, right? This is what we're afraid <laughs> about uh, while a Super Bowl goes to overtime. Uh, but, John, uh, it's hard to ignore. We're at, in baseball season now once the Super Bowl ends. But what would you think of the game? I mean, Patrick Holmes is an all-time great. I'm not a football expert. Uh, I got this game right, which breaks a streak of many, many years of being wrong. But uh, it seems like you just got to go with Mahomes when you have a chance. Go with Brady when you have a chance. Go with Montana. It's easy to say that in retrospect. But uh, I think Tony Romo said it right. He's like Michael Jordan. When it comes down to it, he always ends up winning, uh, especially when he's the underdog. He seems to have a chip on his shoulder. Uh, it's amazing. It's great to have a dynasty in football, and it's great that it's in a small town like uh, Kansas City. And, uh, of course, you're right. They, they made uh, baseball news uh, uh, this winter with some free agent signings as well as Bobby Witt Jr. And uh, we're going to have David Cohn on, who's from Kansas City. So it's the real Kansas City theme today. It's a Casey kind of uh, thing. Yeah, John, uh, it's uh, I almost wondered as the the um, 49ers were coming down in overtime and they settled for the field goal, I think it was like fourth and four. I was like, you're going to give Mahomes the ball. You better score a touchdown. You go for it. <laughs> like, like there's, you know what he feels like? He feels, you mentioned Jordan, he feels inevitable. Like this, this was not a team that like, you know, he didn't really have a number one wide receiver. They had young tackles. Like this was felt like a step back year for them. And if I were to make a tough transition to kind of where we're heading here in in our opening segment, last year was supposed to be like a step back year a little bit for the Dodgers, right? They cut right. payroll. They talked about uh, going uh, like with younger players than they did, and they still won 100 games. They have won 100 games in every season for the last four years that have been 162-game season, and only in the one that was the short season, the 2020 season, did they win the championship. They have clearly built themselves into the super team this year by a billion-dollar-plus offseason, mainly built around Otani and Yamamoto. John, I've been in their camp uh, for about four or five straight days in Arizona. John, what, what do you think of this super team? Yeah, I mean, the Chiefs are definitely a dynasty. I mean, in baseball, we only count dynasty as a team that wins a bunch of World Series in a short period of time like the Yankees did of the late 90s, early 2000s. 
And it's just that it's so difficult to do it in baseball. I mean, we have to give the Yankees team even more credit than we did at that time. It's basically impossible. You you don't win with just one or two great players like you can in basketball. And even in football, if you have an all-time great player and you surround him with very, very good players, obviously Kelsey is a great player and Chris Jones too, but I mean, you can win with a great, great quarterback. That's not the nature of baseball. You have to wait your turn to bat and, uh, the game's not played on paper. Anybody can win. I know they say it's a crapshoot. I'm not sure it's quite a crapshoot in the playoffs. But in effect, uh, the Dodgers, even though they've only won one World Series since 1988, in effect, they're sort of a kind of baseball dynasty. If you win 100 games basically every year, you win your division every year except for one, a year in which you won 106 games over the last decade plus. In effect, that is kind of a dynasty. I mean, they are... In my mind, I don't know what the odds makers say. They are the clear World Series favorite, but, you know, anything can happen in baseball. It certainly will be fun to watch uh, the super team. Uh, we've had some pretty darn good teams in the past, but uh, I don't know if we've seen one this star-studded with uh, Betts is going to be a Hall of Famer, Freeman a Hall of Famer, obviously uh, Otani's a Hall of Famer, Kershaw now Hall of Famer. Uh, Yamamoto, they paid him like a Hall of Famer. So, I mean, I, you're not going to be able to take your eyes off this team. Whether they win the World Series, can't guarantee it, can't even absolutely confidently predict it to this point. But in effect, it's a dynasty, and it's a team you're not going to be able to take your eyes off. Yeah, I I think I'm different from you, John, and I, I understand the uh, difficulty of winning a championship. And I agree with you. With every year that passes where nobody even doubles up, retrospectively what the Yankees did from 96 to I include 2001 when they got to game seven of the world series. Like that was special. I'm not sure it's ever repeatable again with as many rounds of playoffs as we have, as we go through, uh, you know, this feels very much Do you. I, I, well, I asked broadly, I'll ask you a question. Do you consider kind of the Bobby Cox, Maddox, Smoltz, uh, Glavin Braves? Were they, yeah. a dynasty? they won once, what was it, 14 years in a row or 50, something right. like that? They won a division. Because right. the Dodgers, who made the playoffs 11 straight years, have won the division 10 of those. I think in the year they didn't, they won 106 games, or 100, and I think the Giants won 107. Do, do you think of those Braves as a dynasty? Well, I don't know. I'm taking it out here. There's certainly a National League dynasty. Uh, yeah, I, I would say there's some sort of dynasty. I mean, I'm not going to compare them to the Yankees teams because the, the World Series – wins uh, stand apart rather than just making the World Series. But uh, I count them as a dynasty, and I think we're going to see a dynasty. And I, I kind of think the Dodgers are kind of in the middle of a dynasty, too. You win 100 games or average 100 wins for, you know, it's going to be a decade once this thing keeps going. Uh, I, I think that's a dynasty, but I think their fans are going to be dissatisfied if they don't win multiple World Series with Otani and Yamamoto. Yeah, you know, John, I, 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 it's something I learned covering the Yankees first when I was on the beat, and they were mainly a terrible team when I was on the beat in the late 80s and early 90s. I think when you're in that situation, you look for reasons why a bad team might win. And then when they became a dynasty, I always was covered them and thinking, what would keep them from being a champion? And so as I've been around the Dodgers for four or five days now, and I look at it, Obviously, without major injury, their offense is going to be outrageous. You mentioned, you know, Betts Freeman and Otani batting 15 times every day is kind of like ludicrous to a level. If I were looking for something and they solved this last year because they had a lot of starting pitching issues, 
But still, their starting pitching right now is Glasnow, career-high 120 innings. Yamamoto, used to pitching once a week, never pitched here. James Paxton, who, you know, hasn't gotten through a full season since 2019. And two kids, uh, you know, in Miller and Sheehan, who are talented, but kids who haven't pitched a full season. And even the guys who are behind them. Kershaw, not till probably July or August. Walker Bueller, probably not till like May coming off of Tommy John surgery. Dustin May, maybe not until the second half of the season. If I were looking for a reason, they weren't going to win. And I think <laughs> they'll overcome it because they overcame it last yeah. year. You know, Kershaw got her Urias, off the field stuff, et cetera. But that would be the reason. Yeah, I mean, I throw Tony Gonsolin in there, too, who's got a He's going to miss the whole year, though. He's he, not he, he absolutely going to miss the yeah. whole year. Um, he's, he had Tommy John, though, Tommy John, uh, yeah, last yeah. year, right? So, yeah, yeah, but later, right. I well, I mean, uh, May, Bueller, Kershaw. I mean, these are exceptionally talented pitchers. Obviously, Kershaw, an all-time great. Uh, you know, I, I don't see a reason. Uh, I like what they've done. I don't mind that they don't have pitchers who are going to throw 180 innings. Uh, they have kids and guys who've had uh, limited in, in, uh, innings in the past and multiple injuries in the past in many cases. Uh, I mean, they've got so many of them that they can throw at you. They're not going to need 200 innings from Paxton, which they won't get, or any of these other guys, or Glass now. Um, you know, to me, uh, this is the best team that we've seen on paper uh, since probably those Yankee teams. Uh, it's hard for me to name something. Obviously, you can pick it apart and say they could get a little more production. I wonder about Gavin Lux still here and there. Or the, but, uh, I mean, the top of the lineup is crazy good, all-time great good. And uh, the pitching talent is amazing. I mean, uh, we thought they had injuries last year in their pitching, and their pitching was in the top two or three in baseball uh, even last year. Uh, and now they've added Yamamoto. And, I, you know, I mean, people could talk about the adjustment to the ball, I, you know, or the adjustment to anything. I mean, isn't pitched at the major league level. I mean, I got to feel that all these teams can't be wrong, right? I mean, many teams offered $300 million plus, right? The Yankees did as well. I think there were others that offered $300 million. The Mets did. Uh, I mean, this guy is going to be a star. Uh, I mean, we talked about this with Senga in spring training last year, and he was the best thing about the team last year. He, he was their best player. I mean, obviously, Lindor and Alonzo were really good, but Senga was their best player, so... Uh, the Japanese pitchers, we can talk about the adjustment. They make the adjustment, and uh, he's going to be uh, a big star. And this team is uh, vastly improved from a 100-win team. So I, I, to answer your question, I really don't have a good answer for it. I, I don't see it. I, I think this team is is a 110-win team. Uh, I don't know what the odds makers say, but I'm taking the over. Yeah, Uh look, I'm 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 with you. Uh, I the the Japanese ace who has come over. You know, Darvish, Tanaka, Senga, etc. They've all pitched towards the top of the rotation. So I have very little doubt that this pitcher is. One of the things with Senga, remember, he only pitched on standard four days rest three times last year. So the Dodgers will kind of, they're very smart. Obviously, they'll figure out. I do think on the field, if I were kind of like listening while I've been here, what concerns them a little bit? Lux coming back from the knee injury. I wouldn't be surprised if you, you said, Joel, bet on something that happens during the season at the trade deadline. Willie Adamas, maybe from Milwaukee, if Milwaukee's not in it. Tommy Edmond from St. Louis, if St. Louis isn't in it, you know, to maybe help at shortstop uh, in case this doesn't go right. John, why don't we end this segment? We're talking about the Dodgers. The biggest thing they obviously did 
was Otani. You know, 10 years, 700 million, uh, you know, the well over 90% of it is deferred. I wrote a column about this where I kind of just thought about what would it mean for his offense if he isn't preparing all season to be a pitcher also? I mean, in 133 games last year, he hit 45-ish homers. He had over 1,000 OPS. He stole 20 bases. He hit eight triples. And by the way, he didn't have Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman hitting in front of him, getting on base 40% of the time to make sure they he has to get pitched to a lot and see fastballs because those guys could run. What do you think is possible for Shohei Otani? Offensive. Yeah, I mean, he had Trout and Rendon, but they were hurt a lot. So, I mean, yeah. he's not going to have that issue here. He presumably Well, the problem was, was Rendon, wasn't, Rendon hit fourth a lot for him. The problem was Rendon hit fourth a lot for him. He was terrible protecting right. Right. Now, now, as Dave Roberts said, is I mean, it, it, you would think it sets up with Betts 1, Otani 2, Freeman 3. Uh, is that, do we know that that's I think I, I kind of have gotten the, again, they yeah. are being squirrely about a little. I think it's going to be Betts, Freeman, Otani. I think they're going okay. to go. And then you'll have Will Smith. Back. You'll have yeah, Smith yeah. batting behind him, right? Uh, Smith, yeah, Muncy, maybe uh, against lefties, maybe Teoscar Hernandez. Would hit a little forward. right, so they got three candidates for the cleanup spot. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, better being, than with, being in this team, and I, you know, I'd early heard early on he didn't want to go to San Francisco because the ballpark, which I think they have trouble getting other guys too. So I'm not fitting this on him or anything like that, but it's a tough park for a lefty to, to hit unless you're Barry Bonds and you have help and whatever, and he doesn't. Uh, so I mean, he's in a park, another park that plays straight up. Uh, he's surrounded by superstars. Um, he's clearly, you know, he's co- concentrating on uh, hitting. Uh, who knows what he could do? I mean, uh, you know, he, he could hit 60 home runs. Uh, he is a freak. Uh, in many ways, the most talented guy that we have ever seen. Uh, so I, I'm not putting anything past him. And uh, I think they're just going to be fun to watch. And uh I personally think, and I know I've gotten grief from Toronto people, it's good that he's in L.A. because we're going to see it more. And not only that, the people in Tokyo are going to see it more, too, because the games are on, night games are on at 8 a.m. there. If if it was in Toronto, they'd be on at 5 a.m. So uh, I think it was a positive that he went to the Dodgers. Positive for everybody, but but the poor angels who still haven't replaced him. Yeah, John, that's not a minor thing. I'll, I'll, you know, look, let the fans in on a little something. I think Yamamoto delayed time of day he wanted to talk to reporters that, uh, when he talked to, to us yeah. so that it would be daytime in Tokyo. Like, it's not a right. minor consideration for the, 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 those players as we go along. The one thing I'll say about Otani is, and Andrew Friedman talked about this, and I was thinking about it even before I spoke to the president of baseball operations of the Dodgers. Watch the stolen base numbers where he doesn't have to kind of protect his legs. Think about the strength of his legs for pitching. He stole 20 bases last year as designated hitter. I think 40-40 could be in play. (laughs) I think in a Cunha kind of season where he kind of like does like, you know, a lot of steals, a lot of homers are in play for him. It's one of the fascinating things we are now in baseball season, right? I'm in Arizona. You're going to uh, St. Lucie. And if you stick with us, we'll be talking to one of the best in the game at breaking it down. That's David Cohn, if you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. John and I are so happy to have uh, someone we really have, have appreciated having in the past, David Cohn, uh, the terrific announcer. Yes, ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. Uh, David, thank you for joining us. Uh 
look, you're going to be in the yes booth again. Yankees were pretty busy uh, this offseason. So wh- why don't I just start there is uh, they did a lot. They didn't do everything they had hoped, right? They had hoped to pull down Yamamoto along with Soto. Uh, but they did get Stroman. They got a lot more left-handed. They probably got better defensively in the outfield with better depth. What do you think of this offseason for the Yankees? Well, I, I really believe that if it, it it's hard to fathom, but I think their moves are underrated in, in a certain uh, sense. Juan Soto is that good. So when you put Juan Soto in pinstripes for the full year, uh, both home and road, it, I think he's going to match up well at Yankee Stadium. And then you get Aaron Judge healthy for the entire year. That that combination offensively is a real game changer for the Yankees. Uh, I think their pitching is certainly they're, they're a little short in terms of overall depth. And we're going to find out about their farm system. We're going to find out about their young pitching. Guys like Will Warren and and company are, are going to get a shot this year. So they're going to really rely on some of their young young arms to fill in the depth uh, areas of their pitching. David, first of all, I want to thank you for coming on. And thank you for not getting upset when I started texting you. Uh, I forgot it was during the Super Bowl. You know, most people would not be happy to get texts about something like this during the Super Bowl. And you are from Kansas City, so... Uh, congratulations on your your Chiefs win. So I really interrupted something important for you. But I want to take this opportunity, um, first of all, uh, ask about Yamamoto. Uh, you know, $325 million, uh, people are saying, well, he never pitched at the major league level. That's the main thought about the record contract, which is $1 million more than than Cole. Uh, but he the other criticism is that he's a five foot ten inch right hander. Now you're a little bit taller than five foot ten inch, but you're not a big guy. Uh, what do you think about uh, the idea of giving three hundred twenty five million dollars, first of all, to a five foot ten inch right hander, and second of all, to a guy who's never thrown one pitch in the major leagues? Yeah, yeah I, I, those are all valid points, and we're all anxious to watch him pitch to see how he adjusts. And there will be an adjustment. Just the baseballs themselves are slightly smaller in Japan. They're tackier. So every pitcher that comes over from Japan sort of has that adjustment with the Major League Baseball, and it's it's slicker, it's bigger. They've got to get used to it. It leads to some arm injuries that we've seen in the past as well. But I think Yamamoto, when you're talking about mechanics, the fact that he's five foot ten makes his mechanics more simple in my mind from an old school standpoint that the guys that were six, 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 seven, the Randy Johnson types, even taller had trouble sort of harnessing their mechanics. I think I've watched Yamamoto pitch. His mechanics are top shelf, uh, very simple delivery, very repeatable. I think he's going to be outstanding. Uh, you know, the, 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 the proof's in the pudding. We'll see how he reacts to, to major league hitters for the first time. But once again, in today's game, we have so many more ways to measure scout these players with data-driven technology. It's not just some old scout sitting in the stand saying, I think this guy can do it. He has a plus fastball and a plus slider. No, we've got spin rates. We've got uh, approach angles. We've got just about every kind of data point you want to evaluate the type of stuff coming out of his hand. And it all matches up. And that, that's that's part of the reason why he got that big contract. I'm here to tell you, John and David, I talked to him in the clubhouse yesterday. If he's 5'10", which is what I am, I'm in the NBA, okay? So, uh, he, he he ain't 5'10". Uh, let, 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 let me – and clearly the pitch tracking stuff was central to what the Dodgers did. I talked to a bunch of their officials. And, you know, the ability to look at a pitch – and say this ball moves like this guy in the major leagues or has this velocity, this shape, 
was part of it. Let me ask a bigger question about the Dodgers that you're almost the perfect person, probably the perfect person to answer. It's reminded me a lot of the Yankee dynasty years where they've built up to be the super team, obviously without the championships. They have the one in uh, 2020 during the pandemic year, but you know the Yankees. One year it was the Roger Clemens of Japan in Arabu. The next year it was actually Roger Clemens and Knobloch and then Giambi and A-Rod and Randy Johnson. And it kind of built this thing. What do you what do you think about the kind of super team in general and the pressure that comes with being the 29 and one team when everyone's coming after you? Yeah, no, there's no doubt there's pressure there. I've talked to Dave Roberts about it. I know he understands, historically speaking, where they fit in and what they're trying to do there, uh, especially with some of the seasons they've had, you know, with the tremendous regular season success and not being able to close the deal. And all I can tell you is this, is comparing those Yankees of the 90s, those teams, with the Atlanta Braves of the 90s. The Atlanta Braves were similar to the Dodgers in that regard, where they they were the juggernaut. They were the super team, supposedly. But it comes down to pitching. You've got to match up. you got to have a number one guy. you got to have a number two guy that's a number one guy. You have to have a number three guy that's a number one guy. And that's what we had with the Yankees. Everybody took turns being the number one guy. One year, Andy Pettit was the four starter. The next year, he was the first starter. Interchangeable parts in the rotation. Orlando Duque Hernandez. I think that's the one thing that the Dodgers have missed is that shutdown starter. And then it gets back to Kershaw. And Kershaw's kind of problems in the postseason for whatever reason. It's a crapshoot. I get it. And he's a he's a Hall of Famer, surefire. But in postseason, they haven't had somebody to back him up. If your number one starter falters, okay, who's your second number one starter? And that's the problem in postseason play. You know, we were able to match up with Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz with our with our rotation. That's where the Dodgers have lacked in, in postseason play, in my opinion. Got to ask you about Carlos Rodon. Uh, I mean, you're from Kansas City, as I mentioned. You adapted to New York uh, almost too well. Uh, you were great in both uh, locales, in Queens and in the Bronx. Um, you think it could be a New York thing with Rodon, or was he hurt? What, what's your theory of what happened to him last year? I think he really got behind the eight ball when he was hurt right out of spring training. And, you know, I think he's a sensitive guy, too. He's highly emotional. He pitches with a lot of emotion. And when guys like that get behind the eight ball with their with their injuries and then they get out into the, the first start, uh, couple of starts of, of their season, uh, it's already half over. The season's already half over. Then you struggle. And then the things snowballed on him. And the, the emotions got the better of him. Physically, he wasn't the same and also, that you know, there's a difference between being sort of this redundant style pitcher. I'm just going to throw high fastballs and low sliders, and I'm going to throw that pit, those two pitches over and over and over again. You don't have a plan B to go to. You need a plan B if that doesn't work. You know, it's great if you're throwing 97 miles an hour and you've got your A stuff, your A game stuff. Then that two pitch redundant style can work. But if you don't, what's plan B? Do you have a changeup? Do you have different looks? Do you have any mystery involved in, in your in your repertoire? And to me, that that's what he probably needs to work on is that plan B. Because when 97 isn't there at the letters, and, and also when hitters are adjusting to that more and more every year, because we've seen that style work over the last five or 10 years, that that high fastball over and over again strategy – it, it's starting to, to 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 get caught up to by hitters around the league. And I think that's something that he should probably take note of. You mentioned plan B. The Yankees' plan A clearly was getting Juan Soto this offseason. The lefty diversity, the lefty excellence. 
Uh, we've gotten a little over eight minutes into this without actually talking about those two words, Juan Soto. Uh, David, what do you think of the trade giving up all that pitching depth? And what do you think is uh, he does in a in a when he's just in this walk year and he's a very unlikely sign? This is the a walk year player. It's a walk year player. Uh, obviously, the Yankees need to sign him long term. We'll see how that goes on, on down the road. But they do get to see him for a year first. They get to see him in pinstripes, to see how he plays, to see how he reacts. That's not a small thing. It's not the easiest place to, place to play for a lot of players. I, I'm sure Juan Soto will not have a problem. Uh, but as far as uh, his impact on the Yankees lineup and what they gave up, position players are hard to find. Batters are hard to find. Bats are hard to find nowadays. There's a real premium on bats. Arms are easier to find in comparison. Uh, it seems like the pitchers are a little ahead of the, the curve with technology of learning new grips and learning new pitches, whether it's a sweeper or, you know, a different different shape on their pitches. Pitch design is ahead of the curve right now. So finding pitching is a little bit easier than position players. And the Yankees didn't have to give up their top prospects in terms of position players. You know, uh, whether it, any of their young outfielders, name one, they have couple of great young prospects that are outfielders that they didn't have to give up so to me that's somewhat of a win although Michael King looks like a a, a game changer if he's healthy he looks like a you know a, a guy who could really uh, make some noise in the in the rotation uh, with his stuff and his repertoire you know the Yankees are favored in the AL East uh the Orioles won last year by 19 or beat the Yankees out by 19 games they're a younger team they got Corbin Burns if you believe that they are the favorite, try to convince me that the, why the Yankees should be favored because I, I frankly don't get it. Well, I, I you, everybody's in the predictive business now, right? I mean, that's what all of these metrics are for, into, you know, whether it's Zips or whatever, whoever you want to go to that's an expert in, in predicting the future. Uh, you know, the Yankees are predicted by a lot of uh, a lot of these projections to to win in the mid nineties, and I think it's based on Soto for a full year judge for a full year and a bounce back from Stanton in the middle of that order. So certainly you can plug in Alex Verdugo and, and put his above average numbers on, on his career into the mix as well. Uh, maybe Anthony Volpe takes another step this year. So the lineup has to get better. It will be better. And the lineup was the problem last year. So if you're factoring in, you know, a better offensive output overall this year, based on Juan Soto and Aaron judge back to back, two top five hitters, then you can see where the projections are there. I think we all know, though, that pitching is really a key in terms of overall depth. And I always say every year that it's not your top five starters. It's your next five starters. Who's six through ten? And when you look at the Yankees, there's some names on there you probably never heard of. And we're going to find out about the kids. I mentioned it before, but it bears repeating. The young arms in the Yankee rotation, you're going to get to know these guys. You're going to have to get to know them because you need at least – eight, nine, ten, ten, ten starters uh, before the season's over, really before the halfway mark. Usually that happens. Yeah, and look, they traded a lot of that pitching depth to get Soto. So some of those guys whose names we weren't real familiar with last year, like Brito and Vasquez, are gone, and the Warrens, the Beaters, et cetera, are going to have to come up and be them this year. The guy who's pulling all those strings, David, is Brian Cashman, who clearly took a lot of uh, criticism uh, through last year, through the offseason, he's kind of always on the griddle now. The team, like for the Yankees, not winning since 2009, you feel like you have to carbon date it now. Uh, it's been so long. 
uh, you span an interesting period. You were a player when he was an assistant GM and then the GM of the Yankees, and you've covered it. Is Brian Cashman still an elite general manager? Well, Brian Cashman will be the first one to tell you that what he does the best is hire people around him. And he's created these processes around him, you know, where he's built up the analytics department. He's built up every department, uh, even the the pro scouting department led by Tim Naring. Uh, that he doesn't he doesn't sort of uh, he's not the guy that uh, will do a lot of vetoing. It's like this is the way I want it done. This is a decision I want to have made. He really trusts the process, and he'll run it through the washing machine, and it'll come out with an answer. And he generally will go that direction and trust his his lieutenant, so to speak. So, you know, if there's some criticism there, um, you know, maybe he needs to be a little more forceful and have that veto power, and and be a little more forceful with the decision making. Just just from the outside looking in, you know, I don't have any inside information with regards to that opinion. That's just my opinion, but. Uh, is he an elite general manager? I think if you look around the league and, and his contemporaries, they think he is. They talk about him almost with reverence universally, really. You, you go down the line of any general manager or any front office type that's been around for the last decade or so or even longer, they, they love talking to Brian. He's a straight shooter. Um, you know what you're going to get with him. He's well-respected. I think the question with the Yankees is the overall decision-making, this revisionist history that's easy to live. Why didn't you call Bryce Harper? Why did you do this move? Why weren't you in on this guy? I mean, the list goes on and on and on about players they could have had. Why wasn't Manny Machado brought to, to New York to play third base? Or, you know, uh, you know what about, what about uh, why, why wasn't Seager looked at? A left-handed power hitter that's a shortstop when you needed a shortstop. You decided to wait on the rookies. I mean, this revisionist history is something that's always going to be talked about among the Yankees fan base. And, you know, I'm sure Brian Cashman would have an answer every step of the way of what their thinking was, what their process was, and why they chose what they did. But nonetheless, the Yankee fan base sees Bryce Harper, you know, uh, taking Philly to the postseason, and and it hurts because he was a Yankee fan. He was a Mickey Mantle guy. He wanted to be a Yankee. So, you know, that's what you have to contend with if you're Brian Cashman, the, the revisionist history part. Yeah, I want to ask you about one of the more recent decisions. Uh, talk a lot about the uh, shortish or not tall, at least uh, right-handers, Marcus Stroman. Uh, he decided to go with Marcus Stroman. And it does seem like, at least not for now, they're, they're laying off of uh, Blake Snell. Um, what do you think about Marcus Stroman generally? And uh, are you surprised about what's going on with Snell? Here we are. I'm heading up to the Mets camp today. And uh, he's one of many stars, but the biggest star really not to have a job at this point. Uh, yeah, I I am somewhat surprised about Snell. Uh, I think, you know, part of the problem with Blake Snell is is sort of the workload issues, which everybody knows about, the the, the sometimes control issues, the high strikeout, high walkout rate combination, the the five-inning pitcher kind of a thing. That that That's probably the, the red flag for a lot of organizations, even though his stuff is impeccable. His stuff is off the charts. It always has been. He's really got some of the best stuff you'll see. I mean, the ride on his fastball, the high velocity action on his fastball, the biting breaking stuff, the good changeup. I mean, he's, he's got the full repertoire. He would, he would be perfect in any rotation. The problem is, is long-term and workload. And that's what you hear over and over. So yeah, it, somewhat surprising, but then I understand, you know, the arguments against, I still think he's going to end up in a good spot somewhere, you know, uh, and really help somebody out. Uh, but yeah, I, I am a little surprised. Strowman, on the other hand, I think the Yankees, um, 
got a good deal on Marcus Stroman. He's highly motivated, highly emotional. He'll thrive in New York. He loves the spotlight. Um, keeps the ball down, keeps the ball on the ground. Good fit for Yankee Stadium. I mean, there's a lot of pluses with Marcus Stroman. Local kid, uh, big personality. Uh, he'll he'll bring some life. He'll bring some life to that clubhouse and some life to that team. I'm a fan of Stroman, although I know he's he's rubbed some people the wrong way wherever he's been at, at certain times. So, you know, he, he certainly is a very sensitive guy, but he's also a tough kid. And I, I think uh, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting match for the Yankees, especially when they really need a starting pitcher. He was the guy right there for them. David, in a lot of ways, I think you're the emblem of how baseball people should think, right? When you played, I thought of you as like kind of a baseball player gamer. Like, give me the ball. I'm not going to talk about injuries. Whatever I have, you're going to get. You were certainly brighter than the average guy who was in a clubhouse. But I thought of you as a baseball player. As an announcer, it's clear that you uh, drifted uh, towards understanding the uh, analytic stuff uh, and being able to make it conversant to the average fan. I can't believe in 2024 we're still having this fight about, like, what is best. I wonder if you could talk about the marriage and how it would work best, because I think you embody both things. Yeah, no, it, it, it's true. And I, I, you know, people are still you know, having that analytics are ruining the game. And then you ask them, well, what does analytics mean to you? And nobody has a straight answer. You know, which part of analytics are, are, do you have a problem with? Do you have a problem with the, the high-speed cameras that are measuring the spin rate for pitchers that they're using to not only measure their spin rate, but also the, the vertical and horizontal movement on the break of their pitches and refining that and, and having tremendous success with it? And something that I wish I would have had if I when I was pitching, I would have been all over that sort of thing in terms of Boy, if I drop down here, if I change my arm angle and change my grip that the break is like this and the hitters don't like it and the success rate is going to go off the charts, then those are the things in analytics that are really good that, that have helped pitchers a lot. Now, if you're talking about uh, Sabre metrics within the realm of under the umbrella of analytics and you're talking about whether you should sacrifice bunt or not with nobody out and a man on first and second, then, yeah, that's an argument we can still have. You know, there's a lot of variables involved. Can the pitcher field his position? Who's playing third base? How fast is the runner? Can he bunt? You know, there's a lot of Buck Showalter things in there that are <laughs> guys like him think about that that uh, analytics doesn't cover. You know, analytics can be, uh, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, strategy, you know, uh, style of play, three-run home run, Earl Weaver style. I mean, we think this is new. It's not. Earl Weaver played that style back in the 80s, which just don't run – don't get caught stealing, just wait around for the three-run home run. Well, that, that's nothing new. But, you know, if you think – if you're under the, the – if you're the guy that thinks that analytics are, are ruining the game, then you don't really understand analytics, you know, in, in my mind. You, you haven't taken the time to educate yourself. There are, there are areas you can push back on, but you better understand it first. You better dive into it and understand, you know, which part you have a problem with as opposed to just laying that blanket – I can't stand the game today because analytics has ruined the game. You know, we're 20 minutes in, and so we're hitting overtime here at this point. Uh, and I, we, we haven't mentioned your your career, which was quite fabulous. And I, I'm actually one of, I don't want to say few, but one of the people who voted for you for the Hall of Fame. Uh, obviously, you, you didn't make it. I think when I, I told you I voted for you, you told me I was wrong. I don't know. Maybe you were kidding. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh I mean, you won five World Series. It was a lot to your career, overcame an aneurysm, perfect game, 
Uh, I mean, I think were you 19-3 one year, a ton of strikeouts. I'm about impact. Uh, do you really think I was wrong that you're not a Hall of Famer? <laughs> and, you know, we always ask all the, I don't want to say old-timers, but guys who played in the past who they think we've missed on as a Hall of Famer besides yourself. Uh, who did we who did we blow it with? Who should be in the Hall of Fame who's not? Well, on the pitching side, in my generation, I think it's pretty well defined who the best were. I, I thank you for the Hall of Fame vote. I would have <laughs> liked to have stayed on the ballot a few years and have a conversation about where yeah. you fit in. Maybe yeah, that's a bad mention. rule. That's <laughs> yes. a bad rule. We're yes, gonna have the Joel um, Sherman rule, right? Everyone's <laughs> got to stay on the ballot three years. Yeah, I, I think that would have helped because. It's hard to tell your story in one year. It's hard because every you know the writers have a tough job. They've they've only got so many spots they can vote for. Uh, there there's a few guys in my generation you know that I think about. You know Kevin Brown had a really good career, actually a higher WAR ranking than than I had. Uh, there was a point there uh, when he went to the Dodgers where he was just dominant with the Padres too as well. Uh, he was one of those guys where hitters would come back to the bench, and I judge by the hitters' reaction. What my my team's hitter said about the opposing pitcher, and they hated facing him. They his stuff was just filthy. The movement, the sinker, uh, the heaviness. He threw bowling balls out there. So that's certainly one guy. But when I think about my generation, I think about you know I pre- I predominantly pitched in the '90s, the, the decade of the '90s, maybe the back end of the of the 1980s, '88 and on. Uh, Pedro Martinez came in after me, but he's still considered part of my generation. But I think about. Uh, you know, Randy Johnson, Pedro, and then, of course, the Atlanta guys, because they came early and they stayed late. They had, you know, they finished on a much stronger note. Maddox never went on on the, the injured reserve list. Over 500 games started. I think 700 games started, I believe. I think it was an incredible, ridiculous number. Glavin the same way. Smoltz, those three guys, obviously very deserving. Smoltz is the closer and the starter. So, to me, that's... You know, and Clements is in there too. Even though I know that the the, the PEDs and you know all, all the speculation around him is is probably going to keep him out, or, or certainly has has hurt him. But yeah, Roger Clemens might be the greatest pitcher of all time when you just from the numbers numbers standpoint. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's it's Pedro, it's Randy, it's the Atlanta guys. You know, and and then uh, beyond that, you know, you get into relievers. But yeah, I think the conversation could be had because we we understand pitchers more now. We we can peel back the layers and look at who really did what, and 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 look at the numbers a little differently than we used to, as opposed to just wins or just ERA. I think there's a lot better ways to to try to 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 gauge on what a pitcher really did when he was on the field. You know, David John John stole my thunder a little. I was going to close with a Hall of Fame question and a, a bit of a a mea culpa, which was I didn't vote for you, and now each year, as it feels to me a standard gets a little lower uh, for who I see voting. I'm like, well, I thought you were a one and a half. Like I vote for 1%. And I thought right. David Cohn was one and a half. But in this standard, I think you might be a Hall of Famer. And I think what people miss is you just talked about what Kevin Brown felt like to your hitters. I'll say what it felt like in the press box, which was the Yankee Red Sox thing was as vicious as confrontation, you know, kind of thing. It's like, if you were on the mound, I felt you were a one. I felt they were in trouble, kind of kind of thing as I thought about it. And John used the word impact. I thought you were a one for 10 years. So I'm not, you know, I keep evolving. Like people say, why do votes change? 
over time, like, you know, like you talked about bringing analytics into your thinking, like, I don't know, I keep thinking things in a different way. So I, that didn't lead to a question. So let me, uh, because John got to my question about the Hall of Fame, we have ignored your old team in New York, the Mets. Let me just ask, we'll finish by doing this. You're an observer of the game, obviously ESPN. I think you'll probably do the one of the London games this year, Phillies and the Mets, right? What do you think of their offseason? Where do you think they're at? Sorry for being so yeah. around there. <laughs> not at you all, came not around. Yeah, you were wrong, Joe. Yeah, I, I, by, by the way, I, I'm good at mea culpas. I'm wrong a lot. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate I appreciate the sentiment, certainly. And yeah, we all like talking about ourselves, right? So, yeah, yeah. Sir, I, I could do that with, with anybody as well. But as far as the Mets go, it, it feels like they, they have pivoted on the dime, right? When they pulled the plug and made the trades last year and then kind of have shown some restraint. Although they, I'm sure they would have taken Yamamoto if, if he would have wanted to be a Met. I'm sure he would have anted up for that. But it feels like, you know, Steve Cohen's going to he, he's going to learn a little different lesson here and, and say, you know what, I'm going to trust my lieutenants. I've got, you know, a, a GM that I really trust now. I'm going to let him I'm going to give him a little slack on the leash and see how we can build this thing from the ground up. And, and that's what every organization dreams of. It's hard to do it from the top down. He tried to do it from the top down the first three years or so when he was the owner of the Mets. Now he's going to go the other way and go from the ground up, and that's probably a good thing. You know, let the young guys play. You know, get those kids in there. Get them at bats. And I think over the last, especially the last year, year and a half, Buck Showalter was a little reluctant to trust the young guys. He's always been that way. He, he wants guys to prove themselves. You know, Buck Showalter's old school in that you have to earn your way. You know, he's not just going to throw a rookie in there and trust him. And I'll give you an example of that. Back in 1995, Tony Fernandez was the, Yan was the Yankee shortstop, and he had a, a, a bereavement case where he was out of the lineup. And the Yankees called up a kid named Derek Jeter to play shortstop that day in Milwaukee. Derek Jeter was two for two that day and made a great couple of great plays defensively. Tony Fernandez showed up in the middle of the game, and it was boom, boom, right into the game. Derek Jeter, you come sit down. And we were all were going – Leave that kid in a little. I want to see that kid Derek Jeter play a little bit more. But you know that, that that's that's how. And I admire Buck for that. He he really understands that. Hey, you have to earn your keep. You have to earn your way. You have to prove that you're respectful of the game. You have to prove that you can be a big league player and handle yourself the right way. He still believes in that. But I think it's time to let the kids play in Queens and find out what you have and uh, build it from the ground up. And I I believe that's where they are now. I think the problem with Buck that year was he didn't let the kid Mariano Rivera keep pitching in October. Well, that's uh, another, yeah. That's, that's you might, another, you, uh, might have, you might have won that uh, very, very uh, famous Seattle series if he yeah. did. Uh, David Cohn, uh, we always appreciate when you join us on the show. Uh, we always appreciate seeing you at the ballpark. It always makes us smarter. And in this case, I know the fans like it also. Uh, yes, ESPN, David Cohn, thank you so much for joining the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. John and I thank David Cohn uh, for joining us on the show. John, uh, hit or error as we begin spring training. I know we've had a lot of Dodger talk, but I'm going to give the Dodgers a hit for bringing back uh, Clayton Kershaw. I think it's a move that they needed to do. He's a legacy-type player, an all-time great, maybe the greatest pitcher of certainly of this generation, maybe of the last 50 years. You'll have a case for Randy Johnson, Pedro Martinez, Greg Maddox, uh, I'm sure there may be one or two others I'm not thinking of, Roger Clemens, but 
Uh, he needs to be a Dodger. He's coming back for 17th and probably his 18th seasons in L.A. Uh, certainly wants to get that 3,000 strikeout. He will do that. And uh, good for uh, Mark Walter and the Dodgers for bringing him back. You know, John, I'm actually here. That was going to be my hit. Oh, is okay, uh, the other Dodgers. So uh, uh, <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm, a, I'm maybe where of a different generation. I understand players' rights. I'm all for it. I, I like the idea of the career-long player, somebody who spends their whole career someplace where they're totally identifiable. So I'll just I'll just ad-lib and pivot on for a hit on, on the thing, which is I like baseball's back. John, we've done this for a long time, both of us. Uh, lots of spring trainings, uh, uh, if you combine us, or individual it's, you know, I've been at the ballpark because the Dodgers and Padres are opening in Korea on uh, March 20th and 21st. Their camps opened early. I was at the Padres yesterday. I was also at the Dodgers yesterday. I've been at the Dodgers four or five days. I mean, I still like going out to the ballpark. I still like talking to people in and around yeah. baseball. Uh, it's uh, Super Bowl's over. It's good to be back. Yeah, I love spring training. I can tell you about my first spring training, which might be even before your first spring training. I don't know. It was Palm Springs, the Angels. I think it was 1980. I don't know. 87. Yeah. See, when you like, get old, you, get, you can't even remember <laughs> in the 80s. I know. They won't want me to be president. I can't remember anything. Uh, 1987. I, the first thing I remember was day one. I was flown out. Uh, and, and these days we were allowed to do this. I don't think uh, it's kosher today. Uh, on Gene Autry's plane. So, uh, you know, obviously uh, you're flying on his plane. You've got a little bit of a conflict of interest there. But uh, I remember I didn't know the rules. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And uh, 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 Butch Weiniger, the catcher for the Angels, one of the catchers, was warming up Donnie Moore at the time. Uh, it was a relief pitcher. I think we remember gave up the big home run to Dave Henderson. Uh, of course, the Angels have shot at their first World Series win. Uh, and he had done that in 1986. So this was, I think, the next year, next spring, 1987. So he probably wasn't in a good mood to begin with, but he's warming him up. And I'm actually trying to interview Weiniger as he's catching him. And uh, that's not something that you should be doing. That's that's clearly not right. Yeah. I remember Donnie Moore, my first day there, he starts, um, you know, cursing me and telling me to get the heck out of the and use the word heck. Get the yeah. heck out of there. That was my remembrance of uh, the first spring training. As we know, Donnie Moore had quite a temper, and uh, I was really testing him there. Uh, how, how stupid am I, though? I thought I could, I could interview the catcher while he's warming up the pitcher. Yes. I'm not going to argue with you. You were stupid. <laughs> uh, and just look, I, I think we're in a time now, since we're on YouTube, uh, which we would have never guessed then, Gene Autry, famous country singer who owned the Angels. For a really, really right. long time. So I guess we should uh, uh, say who he is. John, uh, you know, look, we're off and running here. The shows from now on will be, we're both be fully in spring training. Uh, you know, we thank uh, so much our producers, Andrew Hartz, Dan Shalom. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, Dan. I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> even with your help. Uh, I mentioned YouTube. Don't forget to watch us on there. Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen uh, to podcasts, please uh uh, rate, review, listen to us. Uh, the reviews do help. And John, uh, I think we'll both be in Florida to do a show next week. Uh, probably you in St. Lucie-ish and me in Tampa. But spring training's off and running. Super Bowl's over. We're ready for baseball. Stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. <laughs>